Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 834, air date November 6th, 2020. Good evening, everyone. It's Dr. Shiva Ayadure. Um, it, what time is it? Wow, it's uh, 9.30 on Thursday. I know many, many things are going on relative to the election. Um, and over the past a year, as many of you know, I've been speaking uh, to the intersection of politics and health. And our campaign, uh, our U.S. Senate campaign, uh, has moved to a much broader, more expansive movement for truth, freedom, and health. And we have people all over the country extremely excited about this. So as people are joining, uh, today's talk is the beginning of a series of talks because a lot of new people have joined us. And it's to essentially reset our understanding of some of the scientific principles, which I think will help uh, provide you a foundation in really starting to understand what is going on in the country relative to many of the important issues. For example, the mask wearing that's going on, the forced vaccinations, the isolation of elderly people. All of these is, these phenomenon uh, really started occurring in the early part of this year, starting around January 7th with the quote unquote, the coronavirus pandemic. So I think it's very important for us to step back and understand that as these election results are coming in, um, whoever is president, we all of us are going to have to contend with the fact that there is a huge push by big pharmaceutical companies to try to uh, force all of us to become force vaccinated and try to put mandates on us, which take away our medical freedoms. So instead of getting into the political discussion, what I want to do today is to take a couple of steps back and I'm going to be doing a series of videos, but, but really focused on the immune system. I did this about, I think back in March, uh, but we've, have, we've had a tremendous uh, number of new viewers joining us. So I wanted to take today to really start focusing back in on some of the science and really starting to train all of you on some of these scientific principles uh, based on the knowledge that I was uh, fortunately able to learn over the many, many years of the various types of education that I uh, was able to acquire uh, through my uh, efforts, uh, you know, my professional training, but also to, through the training I got uh, through other means, you know, direct means of working myself. So I want to really take this opportunity to uh, make this information accessible to all of you, because many of you have asked me over and over again to get back into the science. So I'm going to do that. Uh, it is what I, you know, it's the other uh, job that I do full time, but, but I think it's important to reset uh, ourselves to really understand what's going on. So let me, um, let me begin with that. Let me see. I'm, I'm trying to get my uh, computer here working. Here we go. Okay. Um, so that's really the, the goal of today's discussion is to really help uh, reset people into understanding this. So let's begin. Let me get this stuff set up here. So uh, over here, all right, here we go. All right, so let me uh, begin with this right here. Close this down. Yeah, here we go. Okay, here we go. So let's begin with this. So um, as people are joining, um, I want to, uh, uh, educate all of you 
on what is the immune system and the modern theory of the immune system. And what I'm gonna share with you today is a talk that I was asked to give back in November of 2019. It's almost one year ago now um, at the National Science Foundation. As many of you know, the National Science Foundation is a premier center for science that includes many, many universities, but it's part of the United States government. And I was asked at one of the NSF centers to give what's called a prestige talk. It's an invited talk um, that they, you know, it's a big honor to get invited to give these talks on a modern theory of the immune system. And the reason I wanna give that background is in the midst of all the campaigning I've done, my political positions, um, it, it, uh, the mainstream media are those in power. It's, it's, it's a little bit harder for them to critique me on my credentials and the fact that I'm a full working scientist. So I wanted to give that other part of my life that I do and also use this opportunity so all of you can get grounded on a theory of the immune system, on a modern theory. The, the concept of the immune system that is ignorantly being promoted in mainstream media, that's promoted by many medical doctors, uh, by so-called quote unquote scientists like Fauci, is a version, is an understanding of the immune system that is literally about 100 to 150 years old. So the content that I'm gonna share with you is a much more up-to-date, uh, understanding the immune system. And those, some of you have asked, you know, where can you get access to more content of the other kinds of things I do? So I wanted to uh, point you guys to my personal website, which is on vvictoralphashiva.com. And let me just share that with you. It's vashiva.com and you'll see it right here. So if you go to vashiva.com, you'll have an opportunity to see all the different kinds of things that I do from, you know, the invention of uh, email to the political work uh, that I do, to the invention of Cytosol, which we'll talk about, Systems Health, which is the educational institute I run to educate people on systems thinking, um, uh, Echo Mail. And I also run a, as a part of our research foundation, a seal that we've created for um, clean food certified. So you can learn about that all on the website. But one of the important things I want to also mention to people before I start is on November 14th, and everyone's welcome to register. We're doing a very, very uh, important and special offering to everyone so everyone can find it affordable. There is a, uh, a, a course that I offer called Foundations of Systems Health and everyone is welcome to go right here and register for this course. It's gonna be a three-part series and I'm gonna be teaching it live. You can also take the course online, but uh, two, and not this Saturday, but the next Saturday on November 14th, I'm gonna be offering that course live to anyone who wants to take it. So you can go right to the website here, uh, VA Shiva, um, and you can go find it right on, it's the second blog post you'll see right here, it's called Truth, Freedom and Health Expands. So please take advantage of that for those of you who are interested. So let's sort of jump right in to today's conversation, which is to really educate all of you on the modern theory of the immune system. So let, let me just um, jump right in here. Let's see who else is joining us here. Okay, we have people uh, from all over, all parts of the world. But in the interest of time, I'm just gonna uh, jump right into this. Uh, let me close this. Let's go right here. Okay. So um, again, as I mentioned, this is a talk that I gave at the National Science Foundation uh, literally a year ago today. And I think it's very, very timely uh, given what's going on to discuss this. And what am I talking about is, if you just take the timeline back, so in November of 2019, 
before the coronavirus said, I gave a talk explaining to people that one of the most important things is to understand the nature of the modern immune system. I talked about the fact that it's not about vaccines, pro-vaccines or not vaccines. It's about recognizing that one size does not fit all. We need to take a personalized approach to medicine, which means the right medicine for the right person at the right time. And that's what I spoke about then. And then in January, the coronavirus hit. And starting at that time, I shared with people that this entire fear-mongering hoax of the coronavirus would be used to suppress dissent, censorship, as we've seen. Number two, push mandated medicine, which is everyone forced to wear masks, the forced vaccines. And then the, th and the third part of it was to force um, all of us uh, to do lockdowns, the way to destroy the economy. And all those three things have come true. And the reason I want to compel you to think about that is that in the modern world, your future, whether we survive economically or not, will be faced on, are we going to start listening to people who actually have done the work, who actually know the science, or are we going to start listening to people in Hollywood, the talking heads? And that understanding will make a big difference. Look, um, when uh, President Trump ran or Donald Trump ran for office, I liked him as a disruptor. However, what I want to say is that around him were surrounded by people who really were still elements of the establishment. So when I sent my letter to President Trump in March of this year, and I said, look, please do not do the lockdown. You know, follow a protocol that is based on a real scientific understanding of modern medicine, which says one size does not fit all. And in fact, if you guys want you go read that letter, you'll, say, you'll see I said, let's take all of us and let's beef up our immune systems by supporting us with vitamin D, vitamin C, vitamin A, but we shouldn't be doing lockdowns and shutdowns. The people who are immunocompromised, they're the ones perhaps who should be quarantined and they should get high doses of vitamin A and C and et cetera. But it went to the White House and I though got it. But unfortunately, had the president, had the White House listened to my recommendations back in March, we wouldn't be in this situation today in any form. The entire world went through a lockdown and the United States could have led. But this is what happens when in, in crisis situations, we do not go back to scientific and engineering systems understanding, which is based on reality. Had we done that, we wouldn't be in this situation. We, we wouldn't be on the on essentially with all the economic situation that's going uh, occurring right now. So today I want my goal moving forward is to educate leaders. I don't really care for having followers. Followers are a social media thing, but my goal is to educate you to be leaders. But in the world of health, that begins by educating you to understand what is the immune system and what is the modern understanding of the immune system. And the talk I'm gonna do is gonna be the beginning of a series of talks. Tomorrow, I'm gonna take the principles that I discussed today <clears throat> to talk to you about oral health, the importance of how what occurs in the mouth is related to immune health. And we'll share a series of discussions so you start recognizing we start with the foundation of the immune system, which you can apply to many, many things. So let's jump right into this. Um, so let's go right here. So when we talk about, uh, as I mentioned, this talk that I gave, that I'm sharing with you was a talk that I gave, uh, you can see back on November 19th, it was, it was part of the National Science Foundation, and it was called the Modern Theory of the Immune System, an Engineering Systems Approach. Now I'm gonna give you a short version of this, 
Um, and in that talk, I, I gave a background of how I came to uh, love medicine, uh, what was the research motivation in this. I defined what is systems biology, the technology I created called Cytosol, and then I proceeded to give a modern architecture of the immune system. And we ended with asking some very important questions. So again, some of you may know of this, but I know a lot of you are new, but my background in science and medicine uh, dates back a long, long time ago when I grew, grew up nearly 50 years ago um, as a, a child uh, growing up in two worlds in uh, India. I grew up in the village, uh, in a small village in India, um, which uh, at least a third of my life, which looked like this, you know, beautiful paddy fields, mountains, and it was just very a very pure life. And these were sort of the scenes in that village. And my grandparents uh, were traditional subsistence farmers. My grandmother would be out in the fields planting uh, rice, um, you know, for 16 hours a day. But on the weekends, and that's a picture of my grandmother, um, she was the village shaman or the village healer. In, in, you know, most villages could not afford doctors. So there's typically someone who had studied the traditional arts of medicine. So it was a, a typical weekend on a Saturday or Sunday was there would be 30, 40 people lined up at my grandmother's home and she would diagnose them by observing their face. In the ancient um, uh, medicines of India, there is in fact a whole treatise or book written called Samudraka Lakshanam, which basically teaches people how to look at the face and analyze the face and based on analyzing the face to understand uh, someone's physical state. Now with wearing masks, it's hard to see people's face. It's, it's a whole nother issue we'll talk about, but the concept of analyzing the face was central to the understanding of someone's state of the health. In fact, every part of the face was associated with different organ systems. So for example, the tip of the nose was associated with the, you know, the heart. The center between the brows is associated, for example, with liver. Uh, below the eyes, adrenals, and so on. And, and uh, so a practitioner like my grandmother could look at someone's face and from a systems approach, understand what was going on with different organ systems of your body, and then come to an understanding of your body type. Now, that entire uh, understanding of the face was based on an ancient system of medicine, which is still practiced today, called Siddha. S-I-D-D-H-A, which is practiced in the South still to this day, or in the North known as Ayurveda. And that system of medicine had a whole language, a whole lingua franca. It didn't involve chemicals or genes or proteins or molecules or organs. It involved these words, purusha, prakriti, sattva, rajas, tamas, space, air, fire, you know, vata, pitta, kapha, all these systems. I'm not gonna get into that. In fact, I offer a whole course um, through our institute called Systems Health, where you can learn this. But fundamentally, this idea of uh, the, the world of Siddha understood that you started with the unmanifest, which means non-existence, which was Purusha. Existence came to be known as Prakriti, which manifested itself in energy forms known as Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas. They're almost flavors of energy, which then congealed into uh, the five elements, space, air, fire, water, and earth, would then recongeal themselves into three subsystems known as vata, pitta, and kapha, which were the foundations of determining what kind of body type you were, called your dosha, and how you deviated from your body type, which manifests itself in what are called the dhatus, which were your tissues, 
from blood to all different aspects of your body, which then congealed into your whole body, which included your mind, manas, the indrias, your senses, and your chakra system. Anyway, to keep it simple, behind my grandmother's understanding was a scientific basis, which we in the West may try to poo-poo because we don't understand these words, but there was a whole basis to this. So when I came to India at the age of seven, I was extremely motivated in medicine because I seen my grandmother heal people by observing them, diagnosing them, and coming up with personalized formulations for them, the right medicine for the right person at the right time. Big difference is my grandmother had no degrees in medicine. She had tattoos all over her arms. Um, so she wasn't someone who you would you know, see from the conventional environment. So when I came to the United States, um, it's an old picture, I was very interested in medicine uh, by the age of 14. Uh, I ended up, uh, because I was uh, one of those overachieving kids, I ended up getting the opportunity to go to New York University. Uh, my a dear mother, there was an article that came out saying that New York University was going to invite about 40 kids to go study computer science. I was 14 at the time. I finished up all my math courses. My high school had no other courses to give me. So anyway, I got accepted to this program. I would take the train into New York get up at five, six in the morning and um, ended up uh, going to NYU and graduating top of the class in this intense computer science program. After I finished it, I got a full-time job working as a research fellow at what is in the heart of Newark, New Jersey, uh, what is now known as Rutgers Medical School. So I was 14, um, I was still finishing up some humanity courses in high school, but I got this amazing opportunity to work full-time. And I initially started looking at applying computers to understand why babies were dying in their sleep. Babies have different sleep patterns. In fact, they have six states of sleep. And the idea was that SIDS, it's sudden infant death syndrome, where a baby would suddenly stop breathing. And the idea was that if we could follow its sleep patterns, maybe there were certain sleep pattern sequences that led to the baby's arresting of sleep. So I used computers and I came up with some very powerful modeling techniques to predict this. In fact, before I came to MIT, I presented a paper, uh, a scientific paper uh, with colleagues of mine who were 50, 60 years older than me. But anyway, it was a great experience. But while I was at that university, I also learned about applying computers to build or software to build large scale systems. In those days in that university, every office had a secretary who had the inbox, the outbox of folders, physical folders in the back, uh, and they would write this thing called a memo. A memo was quite interesting because a memo was literally a um, memorandum that people would write, which was the, the medium for communication. So the memo had the to field, the from field, the subject line, the blind carbon copy where you would copy a copy of the, the type, typewritten copy that you would do or the typewritten memo. You would have attachments. And this was all put in what was called an inner office envelope and it was sent around the office. So this inner office mail system was the vehicle for collaboration. So people, if they were gonna hire someone, would write a memo, forward it to their boss, attach their resume, carbon copy people. Anyway, as a 14 year old kid, I was asked to convert this entire system to the electronic version at a time when the experts in the field thought it was impossible to create an electronic version of this. And that's what I ended up doing. And I called that system email. Uh, I wrote 50,000 lines of code to capture every uh, feature, ended up winning one of the big awards at the time called the Westinghouse Science Award. And uh, this was before I came to MIT. So by the time I came to MIT when I was 17, 18, 
I had created the world's first email system, had done medical research, but I was interested in really pursuing medicine. And um, in fact, when I first came to MIT on the front page of the newspaper, they were still referring to the fact I created the first email system, for which, by the way, I got the first US copyright officially recognizing me as the inventor of email. The reason I give that background, and I think it's important to understand is that what I learned as a young person was a systems approach. So email is not simply the exchange of text messages. And this is where the bogus controversy got created. I created email, the system as we know it today. And I have the copyright, the code, et cetera. But so when I came to MIT, I was very interested in taking a systems approach to understanding the whole human body. But unfortunately, what I came to find out was that the medical system did not really treat the body as a whole system. In fact, when you, if you had an illness or something and you went to the doctor, you, the, the body was seen as individual parts, not the whole way like my grandmother saw the body. So if you had a headache, you could be sent to 10 different specialists, a neurologist, you know, you could be sent to a, you know, skeletal system person, an endocrinologist, and each one of those people had a different approach to the body. That's one thing I saw. And then the other thing I found out was the entire pharmaceutical industry, which is extremely important to understand the context of where we are with the coronavirus, et cetera. And this is really important for everyone to understand is that the pharmaceutical industry is burning and crashing to the ground. So let me repeat that again. The pharmaceutical industry is burning and crashing to the ground. Their only way out of this is vaccines. And you'll understand why in a very short way as I explain this. So if you look at the uh, by the way, what is a ph pharmaceutical? A pharmaceutical is a chemical. It's a drug that it's typically a chemical that doesn't occur in nature. So for example, if you look at this aloe vera plant that's up here, right? That aloe vera plant has compounds which occur in nature, chemical compounds. But a pharmaceutical is a compound that is synthesized in a lab that did not ever exist in nature. And that synthetic compound is uh, what pharmaceutical companies is they create those synthetic compounds, patent those compounds, and then try to figure out, oh, that compound could be used to maybe stop Alzheimer's or cancer, et cetera. And in order to get that compound out to the public, they have to go through this very stringent process, as you see here. So the new compound is discovered, then they go test that compound in a test tube. Maybe they have a bunch of a test tube, uh, which has uh, uh, cancer cells, they drop that compound in the test tube and see if it kills it. If it does, then they go kill a bunch of animals, which is called animal testing. So you go from in vitro test tube to in an animal, which is called in vivo. And if you find success here and it doesn't kill too many animals, the FDA will, uh, you have to file what's called an FDA allowance to get it to go through the FDA process, phase one, phase two, phase three. Phase one is small groups of humans you tested on, Phase three is a lot of humans. Now, this is a pharmaceutical process for what we call drug discovery, okay? And this can take anywhere between 13 years, uh, you know, $5 billion. And by the time it goes through that process and the drug is allowed by the FDA to be consumed by the public, um, that drug is only good for maybe 10% of the population. So, um, meaning 10% of the in population that that indication was meant for. The others, it could have massive side effects, it may not work well, it may not be efficacious, it could be toxic. And moreover, if it hurts people, you as an individual can sue the pharmaceutical company. However, 
All of that changed, by the way, in 1986, when Ted Kennedy, the brother of John Kennedy, um, uh, created a way for vaccine companies to be protected. So you see, pharmaceutical drugs, you as a person can sue them. However, vaccines, you can't. Because in 1962, as we'll talk about, the National Vaccination Act was passed. And when the National Vaccine Act was passed by John Kennedy, it was based on a very simplistic understanding of the immune system, which quote unquote concluded that you have to poke someone and give them a vaccine to boost their immune system, okay? So based on that understanding, vaccines became the front line of uh, attack for quote unquote infectious diseases, right? But by 1986, people were being injured by these vaccines. People were suing the vaccine companies. But guess what? Ted Kennedy, John Kennedy's brother comes in and instead of allowing you and I to sue the vaccine companies, they created what was called the vaccine court, where it basically meant you cannot sue the companies, you have to take it to a group under health and human services in the government. And you could only sue them in the government and liability was capped. And moreover, what gets very interesting was the vaccine companies were protected. So think about this, the vaccines moreover, did not have to go through the stringent regulatory process. You could fast track them as we've seen now with the COVID vaccines or the RNA vaccines, right? So bottom line, vaccine companies were given a special status. You can't sue them and the vaccines don't need to go through the same regulatory framework. Now, why is this important? The reason this is important is if you look at the data that, it, that is occurring right now, that um, this entire process is no different. It's a very ad hoc process. You uh, have how we used to build airplanes. You throw a pilot in the, uh, in the airplane and if he fails, he goes, oh, wow, he failed. Gee whiz, and if he succeeded, then you try to explain why. And if you look at what's happening in pharmaceutical spending, every year they're spending more and more and more money on R&D and they're actually finding less and less new drugs. In fact, this is another curve. The, the bar graph represents more and more spending by pharmaceutical industries and they're finding less and less new drugs or uh, less and less drugs are being allowed. So the bottom takeaway from this is pharmaceutical industry model is flailing desperately. Here's another example. Their uh, investments, their number of drugs approved based on dollar investment is going down. So they're less than, even the FDA is not approving their drugs. On top of this, we see a huge increase in obesity in the country. So A, pharmaceutical industry is failing, crashing and burning. We see huge amounts of increase in obesity in the, in the, in the United States. For example, nearly 40% of adults are obese. And nearly, in this case, about 18% of young people are obese. Obesity rates are skyrocketing. And what you find is that the amount of money we spend on healthcare is nearly 20% of GDP. So why are these statistics important? So when you step back and you look at the modern state of healthcare, the drug industry is failing, the obesity rates are increasing, and we know obesity is the basis of many, many diseases. And then here you see healthcare costs are exploding incredibly, okay? So things are not going well for the healthcare industry. And the reason it's not going well is the scientific approach to medicine is what I call reductionist. What do I mean by that? If the elephant here represents a disease like Alzheimer's or the immune system or something like cancer, a researcher in medicine today is not incentivized to understand the whole. 
Researchers are incentivized to understand pieces. You could win a Nobel Prize just for understanding the piece. So by way of example, this diagram here saying it's reflecting on the old story that the great Buddha uh, talked about the king who brought in six blind men and an elephant and he had the blind men touch parts of the elephant and each one of them had, had a dysfunctional understanding. The guy who touched the tail thought the elephant was a brush. The guy who touched the tusk thought the elephant was a spear and so on. So if they ever were to work together, you would get a completely false understanding of the elephant. And why is this important? It's because if you look at a disease like cancer to be the elephant, academic research is not understanding the whole. They're understanding the pieces. This is why we're not solving any of these major diseases. And the reason is academia, which is the quote unquote scientists are highly specialized. They don't communicate among each other really. There's no integration of knowledge. They cherry pick what they need and it's non-holistic. So, so the very big question we need to ask before we start talking about the whole immune system is, um, you know, is the way that we're doing research and discovery and innovation correct? First of all, it's very exclusive. A small set of people are determining what is science. It's opaque, meaning very hidden, okay? It's reductionist, people study the parts. It's highly centralized. It's censored, meaning that if you come up with an idea, they force you down this quote unquote peer review process, which they brand as something that's extraordinary, valuable to protect the public from quote unquote, you know, bad science. When in fact, it is a way to control science and it's depersonalized because the entire biological science is until recently is still based on one size fits all, that everyone should get the exact same medicine. All right, so this is some of the big questions. And the question that I want to propose is perhaps the right way to do science is inclusive, in incorporate many people's ideas, make it transparent. Fauci, for example, and the NIH do not want to make a lot of things transparent. They do a lot of their meetings behind closed doors. They come up with a non-systems-based approach. They don't look at the whole. It's, um, you know, my, my view is it should be transparent. It should be systems-based. We, we should be decentralized. We need freedom and open science and citizen science, and we need to focus on science being personalized, which means the right medicine for the right person at the right time. So this notion is very different than this. So this led to a field called systems biology about starting in 2003. So what occurred as I've shared before, but just a uh, review is, if you remember in the early, 1900, uh, early 1990s, there was a beginning, it was called the Human Genome Project, HGP. And the goal of the Human Genome Project was, could we map out all the genes in the human DNA? In 1990, we knew uh, if you looked at a worm, a worm's DNA had around 20,000 genes. So scientists, uh, biologists said, wow, look at how complex we are. Because we're more complex than a lowly worm, we must have like, you know, maybe a million genes, maybe 100,000 genes. So based on that notion, we entered the Genome Project. And what the Genome Project revealed, ironically, was as a Genome Project went all the way up to 2003, turns out we weren't finding 100,000 genes. We weren't finding 80,000 genes. We weren't finding, so people were dismayed. It turns out we only have 30, about 20,000 genes. In fact, plants like corn have 30,000 genes. But what this resulted in was realizing that complexity of an organism is not a function of the number of genes, which means more number of parts don't mean more complexity. In fact, complexity 
is the interconnections. You could have 20,000 genes, but how are the genes, products, proteins connected to the genes? So it's about the web of connections. So that led to a field called systems biology in 2003, which said, if you're gonna understand the whole human being, you have to interconnect the genes with the proteins all the way up. And in 2003, there was also a challenge by the National Science Foundation, which was, could you mathematically model the whole human cell? Which was imagine looking at the cell as a big chemical factory, and could you create a technology? Let's, because if you think about a disease, cancer is a bunch of chemical reactions, which go wrong. Alzheimer is a bunch of chemical reactions, which go wrong. So if I could have, if, if you could mathematically model all the chemical reactions on the computer, guess what? You could use the computer to do testing of combinations of medicines or natural products long before you had to go kill animals. So that was really the goal. And you could accelerate the, um, the development of medicines. So what I ended up doing for my PhD work was I created a technology which said, okay, if you look at all the papers, let's say on Alzheimer's or cancer, and you were to look at each one of those papers where someone did painstaking scientific work, each one of those papers, ultimately, if you read the paper, there's some diagram of some chemical reaction of a series of biochemical pathways. So if you wanted to understand all of cancer or all of osteoarthritis, you go and mine all those papers, extract out these pathways, convert them to software models. And if you could interconnect those, you could literally mathematically model that disease on the computer. So I figured out a way to do this, and that was called Cytosol, which people thought was an impossible problem. I wrote a very famous paper on it, published it, and I validated that this was indeed a very valuable and powerful technique. So my view was, in the old days when we come up with an airplane design, we tested on the computer long before we do wind tunnel testing and test flights. My view is Cytosol was the same thing. We could mathematically, using Cytosol, model different kinds of diseases on the computers, understand the architecture of that disease, and use it to save time and money and a lot of uh, alleviate human suffering. So that was the development of Cytosol. That ended up becoming a company uh, which I developed between 2003 and 2016. And we created a methodology for looking at any disease. So with this methodology, I could look at any disease or any kind of system and go through a methodical process to extract knowledge out of the literature, extract out the molecular pathways and build mathematical models. So that was the advent of Cytosol. And today, Cytosol works with all different kinds of people who want to work with us. Um, we would love to work with a lot of the pharma companies, but they're actually afraid of it. We did some initial work with them where we validated our technology. In fact, we use Cytosol. We've used it in a bunch of different ways. But more importantly, we use Cytosol to create holistic understanding of disease. So we can mine all the papers in a field, extract out the pathways, model them. And so let me give you an example. Um, in the field of brain health, um, if you looked at the microscopic level and you looked at your brain and one aspect of it, these, these, this is what's called the astrocytes or the neurons. This is the actual part of the brain, which is interconnected, but surrounding the brain is called a blood brain barrier, which includes the vessels, which include the endothelial. And this pink structure is almost like a valve that lets blood, because blood is flowing here into the brain. And it takes, so if proper blood flow is occurring, you, you remove toxins out and you bring fresh blood in. It's called a blood-brain barrier. And this is a side view of that. Well, 
there's been a growing understanding in neurovascular diseases, in all, you know, ALS and Alzheimer's, et cetera, that the destruction of that pink structure, the parasite, leads to neurovascular disease. So with Cytosol, what we were able to do, it's a very powerful example, we were able to mine all the literature and figure out all the molecular pathways in the endothelial, all the molecular pathways in this structure called the parasites, and all the molecular pathways in the astrocytes. And one of the important contributions that I did in this research was create an architecture of all neurovascular diseases. So here you see all the different diseases. At the, at the top layer here, we're seeing all the biochemical pathways when you put all, when you connect all the dots. And then this shows the different mechanisms that interconnect these pathways. But simply put, with, with keeping it simple, Cytosol helps us create an architecture of a particular disease. No different than laying out a blueprint. But what was interesting was when I put this forward with my colleagues at UCLA or USC, people thought, what the hell is this guy talking about? Systems architecture of a disease. Because I was bringing computing technology to biology. Initially, they thought this was a ridiculous idea. But anyway, we wrote back a major letter, letter and this got published in one of, the, one of the most important journals in the world called uh, Nature Neuroscience. So we had proved that we could use our technology to model very complex diseases. Another, but the other aspect of Cytosol was not just to model disease, not just to draw pretty diagrams of diseases, but actually to mathematically model them. So here's an example. When you exercise, when you run or you're doing activity, here I'm looking at one of your arteries. Blood flows through your arteries. That's what that arrows represent. And in the presence of a, a chemical called arginine, your body releases nitric oxide. Now, why is this important? Well, nitric oxide is one of the most important chemicals for health. So when you exercise, you want your body to release nitric oxide so you vasodilate. In fact, this was the basis of the invention of Viagra, which you know increases blood flow to certain tissue. So what we did was when you look at the blood flow, what, how does this occur? Well, the way this occurs is when blood flows through the arteries, if you notice there's these little hexagonal pieces on the surface of your artery. This is called the endothelium. And the sur so it's almost like the tiles on the bathroom floor. Well, when blood, blood flows um, on the surface of the endothelium, which I've zoomed in here, there's this little weird structure called a Christmas tree. I call it the glycocalyx, or that's a scientific, I call it a Christmas tree. But when blood flows over it, that Christmas tree structure waves and your body through a series of chemical reaction releases nitric oxide. So our goal was, could we mathematically model that? Well, when you look at the literature, you find there's all these little ball and stick diagrams. So basically, if you go read the literature, there's probably 10,000 papers written on this topic. With Cytosol, we're able to find all those little molecular pathways, convert them into mathematical models, interconnect them as I'm showing you here, and literally long before we kill animals, mathematically model you know, this nitric oxide at, uh, on the computer. So what you're seeing here is this black line represents Cytosol's prediction of how much nitric oxide will get released over time. And look at this, this is quite impressive. Independent of this work was research that was done um, by Andrew Koo, where Andrew literally was sending blood flow in the wet lab and the orange dots represent the actual 
test tube, quote unquote, test tube experiments, okay? So what that shows is our black line predicted by the computer matches almost perfectly, as you can see here, with the wet lab results. So this was a very important exercise because it showed that we had created a technology that could uh, match what was occurring physi physiologically at, at the biochemical level in the body, okay? So the reason I'm sharing this is because people say, well, Shiva, you're saying that there's this modern theory of the immune system. How did you put this together? But there's a technology basis that allows us to do that. So that's really cytosol. And this was published again in one of the great uh, journals. In the interest of time, I also want to share with you that cytosol was also used to discover a drug for pancreatic cancer. This paper came out several years ago saying that if you're going to solve cancer, you have to do combination therapy, which is therapy, which is what food is. Combine different drugs in order to do that, like drug cocktails. Well, if you have hundreds or thousands of drugs and you start combining combinations, there could be trillions of combinations. And this paper, interesting enough, we don't know who the authors are, had read my thesis and they said that cytosol could, could be an engine that could be used for this. And by way of example, think about in when my grand growing up in the Indian village, you would see these yogis in mortar and pestle mixing different compounds. Sometimes they throw in, you know, grape skins and, and turmeric, which is a herb, and mix them together for, let's say, to have an anti-inflammatory effect. And if you went to them and said, how much should you give? Well, they would do a lot of hand-waving with cytosol. Curcumin, by the way, is the active ingredient in that root herb called turmeric. We're actually able to mine all the papers and literally model how curcumin reduces inflammation. So these are all the molecular pathways we've extracted from the literature and we can mathematically model curcumin. Same with the skin of red grapes, resveratrol. And then we can see what happens when we combine them. Again, we're doing this on the computer. So what you're seeing here, the far right column, this 0.15 represents inflammation. I could do combinations of curcumin or resveratrol, no, no curcumin, no resveratrol, high inflammation. I just give curcumin, you notice the inflammation drops. I just give resveratrol, the inflammation drops from 0.15 to 0.06, not as good as curcumin, but look at this. This is why food is medicine. Here I'm reducing the amount of curcumin from five to three by 60%, but reducing resveratrol by 40. And that combination, that combination has even a better effect than the individual alone. So similarly, using this approach, we were able to literally model the molecular pathways of pancreatic cancer. I went through 10 million different combinations of different drugs, and I discovered a combination therapy that did better than the FDA approved gold standard called gemcitabine. But we proved that cytosol, and we got it allowed by the FDA. The FDA, in fact, was quite impressed. They said, you know, um, we saw your application. We, we, we think what you're doing is the future of 23rd century medicine. So for me, even though it's the FDA, playing with those guys prove the value of our cytosol technology, okay? But my interest has always been uh, in natural medicine. So this became a very powerful way we could validate that. But the net of it is that we have created a very powerful technology for understanding this in 11 months, we got FDA allowance. So what I wanna now move to with that background, let's talk about one of the most important principles of systems. So I've just covered that we're in the era of systems biology. We're in the era of one size does not fit all. We're also in the era of recognizing that we can in fact use computers to model very complex diseases, 
with the technology I created called Cytosol and actually get to the scientific source of truth versus cherry picking. So now let's talk about the immune system. But the key word I'm using here is called system. Now, one of the most important properties of all systems, be it your bicycle or your car or your body or building, is, is a system, is, I'm sorry, the principle called resilience. What is resilience? Resilience is the ability to take a hit and bounce back even stronger, okay? Or a system to be able to take a hit and snap back. So for example, if you see a tree, which is a system, a wind comes, and if a tree were to be just brittle, the tree would snap. But if the, if the, if the tree as a system can be resilient when the wind hits, it bows and it comes back, okay? It's coming back. You go to lift weights. Initially, your body may be sore, but then you come back stronger. That's the principle of resilience. So when we look at this principle of resilience, what we find is that resilience is a function of genetics. It's a function of stress inoculation and epigenetics. So some people are can handle stress. So in the physical body, some people, they freak out if they have too many things going on. Other people are able to handle stress. In fact, in the military, you they take you to boot camp to stress you out. So when you're in real training or real conditions, you can handle the stress. So, so one of the things you find out is that genetics affect stress, inoculation. It, it's good to push the body and how you're forced to do that. But one of the things that emerges out of that is that different people, everyone is different. Some people can handle more stress than others. Other people can handle less stress. So this is a need for personalized and precision medicine. One size does not fit all. And the goal is the right medicine for the right person at the right time. So when we talk about stress, you know, oops, I didn't show the slides here. So when we, this is a slide I wanted to share with you, sorry. This triangle, what I call it, this triangle of resilience. So it says it's genetics. You have to inoculate people, push them, and you have to have epigenetics. So early life experiences, as you can see here. So one of the examples, so what you realize is different people can handle different stress and that leads to the concept of personalized and precision medicine, the right person, the right medicine for the right person at the right time. Now, let's talk about the immune system. And this is a very wild looking picture, but in traditional times, be it in China or in India and other Africa, okay, people were aware of the concept of stress inoculation, stressing the body even with infectious diseases. Because the notion was that your body has an immune system which is looking to be quote unquote infected, looking to get stronger, all right? So what that means is it's the concept that we should stay isolated doesn't make sense, all right? So what this really is about is stress inoculation. So for example, this picture is a technique that was used in China where if, let's say someone had a disease, they would literally take the dry pus of that disease, the actual pus, and shoot it up someone's nose. It was to inoculate the other person. In fact, in traditional cultures, if an animal got a disease, they would put a, a bag over that animal's head or get the, you know, the, the, the mucus from that animal and inoculate the other animals because they didn't want different animals getting sick at different times because you couldn't run the operations of a village. Better off everyone getting the disease, getting sick and getting stronger, okay? But what I'm showing you here is this was a technique that was done. So people were aware of stress inoculation. Inoculation means stressing the body. Like when you lift weights, you're inoculating your body. 
stressing it, and then it gets stronger. So this was a method that was used in traditional times. So it's not like the white man is the one who came up with quote unquote inoculation. This was known. Here's another good article, smallpox inoculation, variolation in East Africa. So in African cultures, uh, when someone had a disease, they would make a abrasion in the hand and then they would give that person the disease, okay? The whole disease, everything. Um, in fact, it was a African-American who brought to the United States the concept of variolation. And, uh, uh, and, and George Washington, when they thought that the British were going to attack the, the, the American troops with smallpox, he didn't, they didn't have vaccines, but he took the same concept and they did this variolation technique, which came from an African slave, and they inoculated 40,000 of the troops. But again, not a vaccine, but the actual disease. And it saved many, many people's lives. And obviously the people who had weakened immune systems, some of them did die, okay? Which would have likely happened anyway. But the point is, lots of people were saved by exposing them to the whole disease. And that's the point here. Edward Jenner then used this technique to start creating vaccinate, quote unquote, inoculation. So that's the background. The point is that the concept of stressing a system, in this case, inoculating the system, stress inoculation has been known for thousands of years. So in that context, let's talk about the immune system. Um, now, when Mr. Fauci or Dr. Fauci talks about the immune system, and this is the talk that I gave at the National Science Foundation, it is a very rudimentary, in fact, an old understanding of the immune system that goes back nearly back to the 1915s. And that model of the immune system is, in Fauci's world or in the world of most medical doctors, unfortunately, most medical doctors can be well-meaning, but they're not a biological engineer like me who studies the approach of the body as an engineering system. We biological engineers truly understand the body as a system. Medical doctors study little pieces, right? Cardiologists, immunologists, right? Or a, or, or a gastroenterologist, they don't study the whole. Well, that dysfunctional understanding of the body has been also prevalent in the understanding of the immune system. And in the, in the old, which is unfortunately practiced still today, is that there's only seen as two pieces of the immune system, the innate and the adaptive. The innate immune system is that part of your body which is exposed to the environment and which is your first line of defense. The adaptive part of your body or your immune system is what is known as a specific immune uh, system that produces particular uh, antibodies. So the immune system in the old world, what I like to call it, but a lot of people don't know this yet, is that's still very old, is in the innate uh, immune system, you have your skin, your cough, your mucosal membrane, your stomach acids, and it's composed of different cells, monocytes, macrophages. But think about the innate immune system as the uh, Marines. They see some agent attack and everyone just starts shooting, okay? It's to take out the enemy fast. It's nonspecific. Again, this part of your immune system is in your eyes, your nose, your throat, your mucous membranes. It is that part of your immune system with these cells here that tries to just take out the enemy fast. The second part of the immune system is called the adaptive immune system composed of T lymphocytes, also known as T cells, and B lymphocytes, B cells, which are more like sharpshooters. They see that particular virus and they try to create an antibody to take it out. But in the um, understanding the immune system, the innate immune system is primitive and broad. 
The adaptive immune system is highly specific. The innate immune system has no memory. The adaptive has memory, excuse me, which is those antibodies, okay? So that is the understanding, and, and there's other phenomenological differences, but diagrammatically, the old model of the immune system is just these two boxes. I, I call it the two compartment model, which says, okay, pathogen comes in and the innate immune system tries to take it out and this fails, then your adaptive immune system kicks in and it creates antibodies. Okay, so look at this diagram carefully. This is basically saying there's a two box model. Your, your body tries to take care of it, which is when you know someone sneezes on you, it goes in your eyes, your nose, and then your macrophages and your neutrophils try to take it out. They create antigens, and then your adaptive immune system kicks in, tries to create an antibody. That's the understanding of the immune system, uh, the modern or the old understanding. So when I gave this talk at the National Science Foundation, I said, you know, on the basis of vaccines is to subvert the innate immune system and just inject something into your body. So your body creates these antibodies. And the goal is, voila, you got those antibodies, you're in great shape, okay? And this is the foundation of the modern vaccine, which is to say, okay, I, I don't want you, I don't want you, I'm gonna protect you, okay? I'm gonna protect you, citizen. I don't want you being sneezed upon. I, I don't want other people passing on their germs. So I'm gonna vaccinate you, okay? Now remember, from a system standpoint, when someone does sneeze on you and you get a, a, a pathogen, your body has all these amazing uh, reactions at the cellular level in your eyes, your notes, that produces a whole orchestra of uh, chemical reactions, okay? Now, what you're saying is, is that you don't need this. I can just subvert it with a vaccine. And once you get your antibodies, you're all set. Well, I have some news to tell you from a real science standpoint. This is absolutely nonsense, okay? The truth is, over the last 50 to 70 years, we've discovered another system that's in between the innate and the adaptive system called the interferon system. What is the interferon system? Well, um, the interferon system, which was, by the way, my thesis, by the way, you don't get out of MIT unless you do really good original work. So one part of my thesis was creating cytosol. The other part was applying that to a problem. And the other half of my thesis was on the immune system, specifically the interferon system. The interferon system is an amazing system that is the missing link between your innate and your adaptive. And what this was, what the interferon system um, is, it, when your body is exposed to a virus, and this was found in rabbits initially in the 50s, late 60s, early late 50s, that your body um, creates things called IFNs, interferon. So when your body is exposed to a virus, they noticed that this rabbit that was exposed to a virus, that later on when it was exposed to other viruses, it didn't get sick. So it turns out that the body creates what's called transcriptional memory and over thousands of genes are upregulated when you get exposed to a virus that your body actually protects itself with things called interferons, interferons. And there's different kinds of interferons. There's interferon alpha and beta. And this is what, um, uh, that's what the innate immune system response is created. So your innate immune system actually uh, uh, provides an early innate immune response against viruses. Those are IFN alphas and betas. And interesting enough, the interferon twos are the interferon gammas. They stimulate anti-inflammatory response. So you don't have an overreaction. Remember, 
You want your body to have good shock absorbers. A, the reality is that is not a pathogen or virus that kills you. It's an overactive immune system. So these interferons are extremely important into modulating the immune system. And then you have interferon lambda, which orchestrates the innate and the adaptive mucosal response. As you can see, there's a whole nother system, which Fauci or most medical doctors don't even know about. It is this interferon system. And to keep it simple, I'm showing you a high level uh, diagram, which I did as part of my thesis on the work on the work based by Tanaguchi. But if you think about this outer circle is your cell wall, the inner circle is your nuclear wall. Here's a virus trying to get into your body to replicate itself. When the virus gets in, uh, your body upregulates these things called interferon beta through a series of chemical reactions. This is called a molecular pathway. These interferon beta, so when one cell gets infected, your body goes and tells a neighboring cell, hey, Bob has been infected. Let's say Bob is a cell and Jimmy's the other cell. And this cell then creates through a series of chemical reactions uh, another uh, set of uh, 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 chemicals called IRF7. So your body is priming itself to be infected. So let me repeat, a virus infects you, your body creates these chemicals called IRF7. So when another virus comes and infects that a neighboring cell, your body then produces these interferon betas and interferon alphas, which interfere with that virus. So simply put, your body is waiting to be infected with viruses. So your body can produce resilience to protect itself against other viruses. So what does that tell you? Maybe we're supposed to get viruses. Maybe the more things we're exposed to, our body turns on those genes. And that is part of strengthening yourself. No different than going to the, you can become a flabby slob or you can go to the weight room or stress your body once in a while so your body creates muscle tissue and gets stronger, okay? So that is what we're seeing here. So that's what the interferon system is about. And you know, for my thesis work, I modeled it. I showed that I could mathematically model the interferon system and my modeling matched together with clinical results, again, showing the power of cytosol. Now, why is this important in the modern day? Well, this paper just came out recently. And look at what this paper says. This paper is an extraordinary paper. It says, look, if we're going to start understanding modern immunology, it says that we need to take a systems immunology approach. And the paper basically, I'll get to it, says that all, this, all of these different systems in our body are related to the immune system. So be it cancer, autoimmunity, inflammation, arterial sclerosis, wound healing, all of them are defined by the immune system. So that's why, as I've said before, the immune system is really the operating system of the body. So if you have your iPhone, or your Android, okay, your operating system is iOS or the Android system and all your apps run on top of it. So another way to look at the body is the immune system is your operating system. And as is shown in that systems immunology paper. And what's interesting about this paper is the authors of this paper, independent of me, said, look, it said a case in point is that the main immunological metrics, what does that mean? That means the way we measure the strength of the immune system used widely in medicine are white blood cell counts and the complete blood cell count. The former, which means white blood cell count, was developed in 1915, and the latter was developed in 1959. It's time for an upgrade. So what's important to understand about this is the entire basis of vaccines, 
the entire basis of people making statements of what's going to kill you or hurt you or mask wearing. All this stuff is based on science that goes back on a good day to 1915, which is over, uh, what, about 100 years old? That we, what, 2015, right? Over 100, over 100 years old. On a good day, maybe 60 years old. So just think about that, that our modern understanding of, or, or, or the, the protocols that people are dictating, governors, Fauci's, or all of that are based on an understanding of the immune system that is 100 years old. Now, remember, I was giving this talk at the National Science Foundation, and um, that's what I'm sharing with you today. So what you see here is that that's what this paper showed. And what I proposed was we need to have a much more deeper understanding of the immune system, a different architecture. Because what, if you look at it this way, that you have the innate, the interferon, the adaptive, and this communicates back to this. But so when a pathogen comes to you like a virus or a bacteria, the notion is your innate immune system gets exposed on the right side. This is the normal way. Then the interferon system clicks in and then the adaptive. So this is, and there's other subsystems as I'll show. But the concept of vaccines, you subvert this, you subvert this, and you stick a needle to get the, the response of antibodies. So I hope people are following. So there's, if you look at the old way, it's saying stick the needle in, get the antibodies, you're done. But when you really look at the immune system from a much more holistic way, you find out that the immune system is composed of multiple subsystems. And going in and over here and sticking something here, is that, that not going to affect other subsystems? So what my uh, research has shown is that the immune system is not just the innate, not this adaptive. In addition to the interferon, we have now discovered we have the microbiome, which is all those amazing bacteria in our gut, in our nose, in the, in the back of our throat, all over our body, over 6 trillion bacteria. We have over 380 trillion viruses called the virome. And this interacts through the gut-brain axis to your blood uh, through your neural system. So all of these things are interconnected. So the immune system is not just these two blue boxes. It's the orange box with the interferon system. It's a red box composed of your microbiome, and the virome, which we don't even fully understand yet, linked to your neural systems. In fact, as above, so below, there is greater and greater uh, evidence now that what occurs in your gut affects your brain. So if you hurt your gut microbiome, you could be hurting you could be causing neuroinflammation. And there's evidence that when you perturb this, these systems, right? By let's say going and sticking a vaccine in, or by let's say eating chemicals, you know, in our food, that you start perturbing this entire very delicate balance. Okay, so I just want you to look at that diagram as I take a sip of water here. And what you're seeing here is that this is truly the understanding of the immune system. Look. Remember, again, I delivered this lecture, not at some flunky place or some, I delivered this at the National Science Foundation. So all of you mainstream media people who wanna do defamatory comments and have done libelous statements, um, you're looking at a, a guy who's trained in this. I was asked to deliver the prestige lecture at the National Science Foundation sharing this. And the research questions that emerge from this is, what is the role of vaccination in the context of personalized medicine? So if this is the entire immune system. You have different microbiome, virome. What does that mean? Okay. Second question is how well are we really addressing 
the health of the public with a one-size-fits-all approach that doesn't fully understand, uh, uh, comprehend the complexity of these systems. What are we doing when we tell everyone to wear masks? Everyone should be getting the same set of vaccines, okay? Who does that really profit? These are some important scientific and political questions. The next question is what is a what is the role? What is the role uh, for information theory and technology and personalized healthcare? What I've shared with you is saying technologies like, such as Cytosol can really give an in-depth understanding of the multiple interactions. It's not just sticking a vaccine in here and saying, voila, everything's gonna be okay. Well, that could have serious side effects. And finally, where should the locus of control for healthcare be? Should it be centralized or should it be decentralized? Should our decision for how we handle our health be a top-down model? Governors of states saying everyone should be vaccinated, everyone should wear masks, particularly young children whose immune systems are just developing. What are the implications of this? So these are some of the important um, questions that my research uh, has exposed when you take a much more holistic understanding. And the other question is, can healthcare be fully predictive when we're dealing with biological systems that are infinitely complex? And another one is, how might politics and the profit motive be playing into our research in, into these questions? And finally, when we go from a paradigm of a win-lose paradigm in research to a paradigm like Cytosol, where we should include all sorts of research. What will that do? And then finally, sorry, this is the final one, do vaccines bypass and short circuit the interferon system? So that's the question here. So I wanna leave you with this diagram here that this is truly the modern understanding of the immune system, which was what the goal is. And it's a systems approach to health. So I wanna encourage you all, this tomorrow, I'm gonna to be using these foundations to look at oral health, okay? You know, mask wearing may affect our oral health, but before I even go there, tomorrow I'm gonna to educate all of you on the interconnections between oral health and immune health, now that you have a foundation of understanding the immune system. So what I've just shared with you here is a modern theory of the immune system, not lowercase t, but uppercase t, which means a holistic understanding of the immune system. So I hope this has helped all of you. I know it's a little bit rich in science, um, but I hope you're understanding that, that the immune system is a complex system. That's the number one takeaway. That one size does not fit all. That it's fake science to say everyone should get vaccines or everyone should be on this vaccine schedule. It doesn't make any sense. Just like telling everyone they should eat the same food or telling everyone they should like this particular thing. The body is a complex, personalized system. And the trajectory of medicine is one size does not fit all. The right medicine for the right person at the right time. There you go. I hope this has been helpful. I also want to, again, let everyone know that all of you are invited to, I have a course, one of the, um, one of the institutes that I've created, and I'll share with this with you very um, uh, quickly, is I've created an entire institute to teach people a systems approach to health um, and many of you have said, hey, Dr. Shiva, don't be shy. Tell us all the other things you do do, so I will. But uh, I after I finished my research back in 2007 at MIT, I went back to India, took a little bit of time off. Now I'd gotten all the Western education to see if I could explain how my grandmother was able to do her analysis. You know, was there a scientific foundation to Eastern systems of medicine? 
I went back to India and I made a huge discovery showing that the Indian systems of medicine were really not medicine, but they were an engineering systems approach to understand the body, albeit they used a different set of words. And I got back to the United States, I created a whole course curriculum, I used to teach it at MIT, and then I converted that course curriculum to make it accessible to all of you. Instead of, I mean, I, I, people used to pay me tens of thousands of dollars. I'm, I, I, I didn't, people, it was good money, but um, I wanted to make it accessible to more of you. So I created a version of that course in a series of programs, beginning with the foundations of systems health and then a master's program. So if I take you over uh, to it, if you go to systemshealth.com, I'll share with you right here. You will see it's, it's called Truth, Freedom, and Health, Educating Leaders to Ignite a Systems Revolution. And in many ways, it's something I've always been done. And for those of you who are part of the campaign or helped us, I gave you access to these courses. But this is a Foundations of Systems Health course. And what this course includes is a set of courses where you first you understand systems theory. I teach you how your body is a system. And I teach you how you could apply this system thinking not only to your body, the same principles you apply to your body, you can actually apply to understanding politics. And for that matter, any system. And where we are right now in our development as a society, given what we're seeing with election fraud and all of this, you know, our political campaign is expanding now to a movement for truth, freedom, and health. And my goal is to educate all of you to understanding these principles so you can become, as we say, leaders, leaders to ignite a systems revolution. And this course curriculum I put together will provide you that. It includes a book. It inc you actually can get certified. I actually give you a portal, and maybe I'll talk about this more tomorrow, where then you can use this to educate others. So please go check out Systems Health. In fact, um, Jennifer may have mentioned, um, if you go to vashiva.com, we're doing a very, very special uh, offer that's going on right now because I feel it's preeminent that all of you start getting educated on a systems approach. Otherwise, we're all going to be bamboozled by politicians. And if you go right here in one of my recent posts, um, I have it called Truth, Freedom, and Health Expands. It's on vashiva.com. And on the website right here, what we've put up is a special offer. I'm going to be teaching. I mean, you could go take the course at System Self by yourself online, but I believe given what's going on in the world right now, I'm going to be teaching this course live. You can come to our center in Cambridge. If you guys want to fly in, you can come in. Uh, 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 this is going to be taking place between 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. right here, as you can see on November 14th. You can also um, get it on Zoom. So if you register for the course, and by the way, this course, I, th uh, I think we used to charge $250, but you can use this coupon and you get it for only 50 bucks. So it's nearly, uh, whatever, 80% off. So please take advantage, or more than that, uh, $200 off. But my intent is to educate as many of you as possible to start understanding principles of systems. That way you can understand your body as a, as a system. You can also understand how to be a leader in the movement for truth, freedom, and health. The same principles that affect your body govern political systems. It may seem far-fetched, but that's where you're gonna learn. And it's gonna be quite extraordinary for you to learn this because with that knowledge, you, my goal is to make you leaders. I don't want followers. I want each one of you to be leaders because part of what the course will teach you on the political side is the interconnection between truth, freedom, and health. That's lesson one. The other lesson you'll learn is why we must build a bottoms-up movement. 
All things in nature are decentralized, bottoms up. And then you learn how just as in nature, you have things that mimic each other, things that try to fake you, okay? In the political world, you have the not so obvious establishment. You have the obvious establishment, but the more insidious form of the devil is a not so obvious establishment. The people who claim that they're gonna support you and fight for you for if you're a worker or if you're a minority, well, those same people are the people that sell you out. And this is a phenomenon that's part of political system. So please, I urge you to join us on November 14th. You know, sign up, take advantage of this. You know, it's time that we you get educated on a systems approach because systems thinking is where you'll be able to discern truth from lies. You'll be able to see the elephant, the whole, not the little parts. Anyway, everyone, I, I hope this was valuable. So again, tomorrow I will be discussing oral health, mouth health and immune health, okay? Very, very important point. The mouth is the center area where we have so many different bacteria. The immune system participates in here. And what occurs in the mouth uh, defines many, many, many other diseases that we'll talk about tomorrow. And we'll be doing that around 9, 9.30 tomorrow. Anyway, thank you, everyone. Be well, be the light.